Sorry, I should have I should have given everyone a trigger warning. You're going to see the breaking down of a massive tuna. There's a little bit of blood. Because we use, there's meat in the chicks, so we use the chicks. But the head, we scratch all the meat around it. It's actually fascinating. Let me get the link for this and share it with everybody. Oh. So I cut the one side of the head, now I'm going to cut the other side of the head. So we move the head first. We, we won't go through the whole thing. It's, 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 uh, the link is in the chat. Look at the size. This well, is a small... The, the meat in there. Look at all the meat inside the head. The belly is the best meat of the tuna. So that's where the toro is. That's where the beautiful part. The best part of the meat comes from right there. The toro side, the belly side. You see the line there? That's the line that you follow. Uh, the, how much they paid for that fish? It was many thousands of dollars. I don't remember exactly how much. All right, and we'll, we'll stop here. Just it's, it's an amazing dissection of the animal. He had the sharpest knife. Look at the way the knife slices through the body. The quality of that fish. And this is uh, probably the best sushi place in, 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 in Montreal, if not Canada. All right, everyone can go watch the rest of that afterwards. Um, see, we don't always have to start. Look at the beautiful piece of meat. And his, his tools behind him. Oh, my goodness. All right. That's Park Restaurant in Montreal. Uh, Antonio Park, Chef Park, when I was a lawyer, was, a, was my client. My, my, I'd not say my favorite client. Some were, you know, you, you don't compare clients like you don't compare children. Some files you don't like quite as much. Uh, Chef was one of my favorite clients and makes the best damn sushi on earth. Um, and it's apropos, look, I, I'm starting with that instead of starting with the, the latest Twitter fight that I've gotten into. I'll do that tomorrow and we don't have another world-renowned, you know, salivate-type uh, inducing, saliva, saliva, <laughs> salivation-inducing chefs, Chef Andrew Grohl. If you don't know who he is, you'll know now. I think a lot of us were in the same political sphere. I guess we call it the red pill, uh, the red pill sphere of the interwebs. I think a lot of you watching now know who Chef Gruel is uh, by his Twitter feed. If you don't know who he is, you're going to know who he is in thorough detail by the end of this. Um, he's in the backdrop. Let me just make sure that we are currently live everywhere. We're live on Rumble. Let me refresh and just make sure. Okay, it looks good. Looks good. Okay, it is good, but now I'm getting an ad. Sorry, hold on a second. Okay, so we're good on Rumble. We're good on vivabarnslaw.locals.com. Standard disclaimers, though, probably won't come up anytime today. No medical advice, no legal advice, no election fortification advice. You all know how the support works. vivabarnslaw.locals.com is our locals platform. You can get merch at Viva Fry, all that other stuff. Super chats, uh, rumble rants. We've got a Viva Barnes Law uh, locals community thing going on right now, so I'll get to some questions that the community has for Chef Gruel. Um, but not to waste too much of an intro time, Chef Andrew Gruel is in the house. If you don't know who he is, you're going to know who he is. Chef, I'm bringing you in in three, two, one. Sir, how goes the battle? Uh, it goes. We're battling. <laughs> oh, God. I, I've been boning up on your podcast. Like I, I knew enough about you. You read Wikipedia. It gives you the basics. Uh, I listened to your podcast on Ruben or your interview with Dave Ruben from 2021. And what's amazing is listening to these things two years down the line. Uh, much of what was, you know, it ages very well, depending on what side of the blue pill, red pill divide you are on. Uh, listen to on Eliza Blue. 
uh, in, in, interesting stuff. So I know, I think I know everything about you that you've publicly disclosed, but we're going to get into a little more today. Um, before we even get into it, let me make sure what I'm thinking about here. Uh, now we'll get to where people can find you at the end of this, but everyone's going to know. Uh, who are you? 30,000 foot overview. And I hope you know that I like to delve into childhood to understand the present adult. But who, who are you for those who don't know? Hey, I'm America's chef. Uh, I, I'm a chef and culinarian. Uh, I've been on various TV shows, Food Network, FYI Network. But right now I own Calico Fish House in Huntington Beach, California. I previously owned Slapfish, which was a 28 unit fast casual chain that I started as a food truck back in 2011 and grew to a franchise. And now we're just doing it all over again. Uh, well, actually, we're going to break all that down because one thing that's fascinating, you know, there's the there's the culinary side of being a chef, and then there's the business side. And uh, having been a lawyer, uh, you know, dealt with chefs, restaurants, and franchises, it's it's a very complicated thing that you're going to have to flesh out for us. First question first, I think I know the answer, but chef, your last name is Gruel, real or fake? Hey, that's real. It was a calling, you know. Everybody, that's the that's where people trash me on Twitter. Why would I trust a chef named Gruel? But the thing is, I make the best darn porridge. <laughs> that you could ever have. And I promise you that. I remember the day when the word of the day on Wordle was gruel. And then you tweeted out, I'm, I'm today's Wordle. Uh, yep. For those who didn't get it back then. Uh, okay. So let, let's, let's back it up all the way to the childhood. Gruel as a last name is of Germanic origin, if I'm not mistaken. And I think it actually means victorious of Germanic origins. Um, where, I mean, you're from New Jersey. Where are your parents from? How long you've been in America for? What's, what's childhood like? Yeah, so I'm from New Jersey originally. Both of my parents, we grew up in Jersey. My my father, the name Gruel is German. So uh, I, I actually grew up speaking uh, German. My father was stationed in Germany as well in the U.S. Army. And now my mother's side of the family is all Italian. So I'm half Italian, half German. So my family was from Staten Island, the Italian side of it. So obviously we've got that, that culinary side with the Italian piece of it. But, uh, you know, I'll tell you, childhood-wise, I actually grew up, I was a latchkey child, right? So I did not have those gourmet dinners, and I don't have the stories of rolling pasta with my grandmothers. I grew up on Sara Lee and anything that could fit into a microwave. I actually thought that eggs were microwaved until I was about 13 years old. So, uh, uh, you know, for me to end up in the culinary industry is pretty funny to the whole family. What does a latchkey child mean? It means both my parents worked all day, every day, um, you know, so I was you know, kind of fending for myself while, while they were hardworking, hardworking parents trying to, you know, do, do what they do and give us a good upbringing, my sister and I. So uh, I cooked a lot at home as a result of that. That was the trouble that I got into. So two kids in the family, you and your sister. Yep. And uh, parents still alive? Yep. Both, both still alive, still in Jersey. Uh, mother's still working, father retired. And uh, my dad spends his uh, winters in Florida. Uh, so that, uh, that's my Florida connection. And, and uh, let me ask you this, if I may, what, what did your father do? What does your mother do? Did they do the same thing uh, throughout their lives or did they bounce around jobs? Yeah, my dad, you know, it was funny. My dad actually was a finance guy. He went to college, got his, uh, he got his MBA. And then well, after getting his MBA, he got drafted to Vietnam and, uh, you know, was like, well, you know, I'm going to go and do my, pa my patriotic service and uh, was supposed to go to Vietnam. And at the last second, as they were all actually going to board planes, turns out there was a finance officer who was uh, either moving up or being promoted or retiring out at a base in Germany. And my dad went from, got pulled off the line and ended up in Germany um, doing, doing finance with the troops out there as a result of uh, his educational background. So narrowly missed uh you know a bullet there pun intended 
And my mother is an urban, and then he ended up in finance, uh, specifically um, as a in, on the corporate side of things. My mother is an urban planner. She started her own firm, uh, so she does urban planning, design development. She's she was a pro, she's a professor as well as owning her own firm at Rutgers University. And uh, so we grew up looking at curb cuts and parking lot designs. Okay, that's very interesting. So your dad was drafted to Nam. This is you're born in 1980, so this is before yeah. either of the were born. Ends up yep. in Germany. Uh, for mm -hmm. how many years was he in Germany? Two years. All right. And then growing up, was he didn't serve anymore growing up. He wasn't away from home for that reason. Growing up, it was it was work between your parents? Yep. It was work between the parents. Exactly. You know, my dad had a, uh, he was an inner city kid, uh, pretty rough upbringing. So for him, it was about, you know, working his butt off and always trying to provide for us. So, you know, they worked, they were around as much as possible, obviously, but, uh, you know, they were hardworking parents. And how many generations American? I'm always fascinated by this. Like how far back can you trace your family in the States? Uh, so my grandfather did come over from Italy um, when, when my, right before my mother was born. So they were just, you know, she was the first generation in America coming over from Italy. And uh, my father from their side from Germany, I think, was probably about the same. Okay. And Germany as in the Germanic side, not the, not the Jewish side of, of Germany, of those who fled uh, during the war, before the war. Correct. Correct. Okay. Fascinating. Two kids. Parents are out the entire time. You're getting you're you're the level of which you get into trouble consists uh, of in the house where you you were not a troublemaker as a kid, not getting into trouble in school. Um, just uh, pretty, uh, I say, not ordinary, but trouble free, except for the hell that you were raising in the house. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, you know, I was a class clown, but that, other than that, you know, I uh, I. I I enjoyed academics to some degree and was into sports and athletics. But, uh, you know, for me, it was I always tell this story. I used to actually, as dorky as this sounds, I would skip school not to go party, but I would stay at home and I would watch like the old uh, PBS cooking shows, kind of those dump and stir cooking shows, Yan Khan Cook and Julia Child and Jacques Pepin. And I would try and recreate that in the kitchen at home. My mother would sometimes come home early on, uh, you know, a little surprise visit, perhaps a meeting or she wasn't testifying um, in the nighttime, which is what she would do. Right. Daytime was working. Nighttime, she would go and represent these cities and, you know, testimony about how they're redeveloping their cities, their, you know, kind of the city structure and, uh, um, you know, the plans. And uh, she would just find you know, butter wall to wall or, you know, small fires on the stove. And, and that was my trouble. All right. No, I, and I ask only to like, you know, try to understand how those who have become sort of vocal critics against the system as adults, what they were like as kids. And I compare it to my life and say, you know, I, I project that everyone had to have been a, a hellraiser, uh, rebellious, troublemaker, problem child to have grown up to be, you know, what were uh, what was a liability as a child growing up becomes an asset in terms of critical thinking as an adult if you can make it through relatively unscathed. Uh, 1980, so you're 43 years old. Uh, public school in Jersey? Uh, public school and then private school. Um, because I was getting in a little bit of trouble and my parents uh my dad knew the admissions director he actually had served with him at a local private school and uh it was funny because i was a bit of an outsider going to private school where we were from there was a private school near there but most of the kids came from a real rich area of new jersey to be you know driven in by their private drivers to this private school so i absolutely hated it um i was into punk rock and skateboarding and all of that so i was a bit rebellious at that point and then when they told me i had to go to private school that was just way too troublesome for me 
Um, and uh, so I got to understand authority pretty well. But I also there was a deep honor code at our at our private school, which I appreciate now looking back on it. And, uh, you know, that that kind of honor code and that moral compass that they built out for us has stayed with me for years. And uh, not not a religious private school. It was not it was not religious. However, I was an altar boy for many years. I grew up Roman Catholic and uh, was very involved in the local church community. Okay, fascinating. Now, you fast forward a little bit. Uh, I mean, people always ask how you get how someone gets into becoming a chef. You know, there's culinary school um, and then there's sort of uh, the the other way around, which is sort of accidental for some. Uh, What what did you study after high school? How did you get into the world of, of, of being a chef cooking? Well, that is a funny story. So I actually was, you know, get it. You got to get a job when you're 14, 15. So one of the first jobs that I got um, was in host uh, restaurants. Right. So that was my high school job. I absolutely loved it. I loved the fast pace of the restaurant industry. I loved food. My dad was involved with an org with AAA. Right. So that was who we worked for. And they did a lot of rating of restaurants. So we kind of understood that growing up. And I I did travel with my dad a bit for some of his business trips and got to love food. and uh, so that was why I was like, oh, I want to work in restaurants and then ultimately worked at some finer dining restaurants before I went away to college. I went to a small liberal arts college up in Maine. It was called Bates College. Um, it's like 1700 students. And my major was actually piano performance and philosophy. So that's what I was studying for the first two years of that I was there while I was there having, you know, naturally you get to college. Your parents are like, you got to still get a job. You got to pay. And I was also an athlete. I was a runner, distance runner. And I uh, started working at Lobster Docks, um, working in various restaurants along the coast of Maine. And this ultimately does come full circle to my to my concept. But uh, after about a year or two, I realized I was spending way too much time working and in kitchens than I was in class. My grades started to go down. I ended up quitting running. But it wasn't because I was screwing around, although I was a little bit, but I was just so involved in the restaurant industry. So naturally, I said, I'm not going to waste any money or time here. And I'm just going to completely immerse myself in restaurants. And I left college. I actually hitchhiked from Maine out to Wyoming. I got a job with the Grand Teton Lodge Company over the summer of my soft, what would have been going into my junior year in college. And uh, I worked for the Grand Teton Lodge Company as a chef out there after hitchhiking from Maine to Wyoming or Montana, rather, actually, I went to Montana first and then took a bus down. And after that, it was, you know, it was then I got the full bite, ended up doing my apprenticeship out in Oregon. And then I went back to school to get my culinary arts degree. And then ultimately my food service uh, business management and food marketing degree. Uh, how, how old are you when you're hitchhiking across the country? Uh, 1920. Uh, I don't know if your parents are anything like mine. Were they terrified? Were they absolutely opposed to this? Did they realize, you know, if they love you, they have to let you go type thing? Because I think my parents would probably kill me before letting me do that back in the day. They didn't know about any of this. Now they do. But at the time, they just thought I was taking that I was taking, you know, taking a train across the country to get my job. They knew that I had a job. I had that lined up. And, uh, you know, so everything in between was, you know, a bit improvisation. And uh, Grand Teton's the most beautiful place on earth or tied with other places? Oh, I mean, Grand Teton's was amazing. I got out there working there in April um, and, you know, it says the snow, the snow's melting and it's the, you know, spring is turning into summer before the tourist season hits. I mean, it was the greatest summer of my life and uh, it was absolutely amazing. 
it truly, truly was. It is the most beautiful place, one of the most beautiful places in America. We talk a lot. I see it on social media, people posting about how we don't take advantage of our national parks enough. And it, it, it is that is a true because there's a there's a kind of a, an environmental blessing. I, I, you know, and I you know, it's funny. I was into specifically environmental literature and environmentalism. And I, I hitchhiked across the country to try and, do, you know, become the, my own Jack Kerouac, if you will, or Edward Abbey, what have you, any of these kind of 60s, 70s, environmentally focused beat writers. And I absolutely loved it. And that's actually been the cornerstone of my business has really been this environmental push. I just got done at an ACC conference, which is the American Conservation Coalition. And it's all about free market environmentalism. So I've made that a big piece of my platform now, kind of on a go forward basis, because I still consider myself an environmentalist, although there seems to be some dissonance there because you can't be a libertarian or you can't be free minded and also being environmentalist, according to many people on Twitter. Yeah, we're, we're, we, we are going to, there's a, there's a few questions in terms of uh, the environmentalist side about, um, you know, uh, getting meats from, from what do they call them? Responsible sources, which we're going to get to, because I have a list of questions from locals that we're going to, we're going to get to. Um, so you spend the summer in, in, in the Grand, in Wyoming, Grand Tetons. Uh, then you go back and you get, what is it? Is it called a culinary degree, a, a chef's degree? Well, first it was an apprenticeship, right? So you've got, ultimately, you can either go to culinary school or you can do your apprenticeship. And the apprenticeship is where you actually work under, uh, you know, a world-renowned chef or, a, a, you know, just a classically trained chef. And you learn the basics, the fundamentals. It's the same thing that you would learn in culinary school. And it's all that kind of classic French brigade system, sauces, soups, the foundations of cooking, your mother's sauces, all classic French, Escoffier style. Um, so I did that for, for uh, a while at a... Uh, Actually, it was the, the hotel was Timberline Lodge and it was it was like a Swiss master chef. Timberline Lodge is where they actually filmed the exterior shots from The Shining on the top of Mount Hood. Uh, it's the only place in North America where there's actually skiing year round because of the glacier that sits on the front of it. So I lived up there uh, and worked like 80 hours a week, lived in a little cabin at the base of the mountain. I would uh, I would go out, hitchhike to work in the morning with my snowboard and then I would get off work. And this was like 6 a.m. And then I would get off work at 10 p.m. And I would actually put a headlamp on and I would snowboard through the trees all the way down the mountain home every single day. So it was the coolest experience in the world while I was going through this education. Well, damn it. Now I'm ex actually extremely, extremely jealous of that visual. Uh, yeah. uh, okay. Amazing. So you, you, the apprenticeship is how long does it take to get, I mean, I, I'm not to say credentials matter, but like, the, do you get an official recognition accreditation after this apprenticeship that allows you to then say, I've, I've done this and I'm, I'm certified ish. Yeah, you can, you can, mine wasn't uh, an accredited um, apprenticeship because I knew I ultimately did want to go back and transfer my college credits to get the full bachelor's and get the degree and then ultimately go back to business school at some point. So for me, it was more about just the, you know, it's kind of, you, you do the apprenticeship, you learn the system, you work your way through the restaurant, through the brigade, if you will, from kind of dishwasher to saucier to young um, chef de partie, which is like a banquet assistant, and then ultimately through the line, dining service, breakfast, you name it. I mean, it's every single aspect. You don't necessarily learn the formal business aspects of it, but it's all hands-on culinary, the artistry of it. Okay, excellent. And then you go then afterwards to get a business degree. Yeah, then I moved to Denver, Denver, uh, Johnson Wales University, which is one of the large Johnson Wales University and CIA are the two largest culinary accredited culinary institutes and colleges in the United States. So I wanted to stay stick around kind of in the mountainous region. So I went to Denver, the J JU law campus turned into Johnson and Wales um, or the DU law campus turned into Johnson and Wales. It's like the third year the new culinary school was open. So I went there, transferred my credits and got my culinary degree 
while simultaneously working um, and almost continuing forward in my apprenticeship, but more of kind of an internship with a certified master chef in Colorado. So there was only at the time about 50 certified master chefs in the world, uh, which is a formal accreditation program. And I worked under one of them, uh, one of the few in the United States for two and a half years while I was going to school. Okay, phenomenal. And now, I don't know what, what age we're at here. We're about 22, 23 years old? Yeah, 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 roughly. Um, so you, 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 culinary school. I, people imagine you, you go, you learn what types of foods mix with what, what. I mean, what type of training actually goes into the school? What types of classes do you have? How fascinating is it for anybody who's thinking about it? Or is it, is it tedious and there's a lot of basic stuff and then a lot of technical stuff? Yes. Yeah, so I came at it from an, from, from an experience that I already had a lot of culinary skill. Now I did it backwards, right? So I didn't understand intellectually the fundamentals of what I was doing, but I could understand how to make all of these things. And I had muscle memory in the kitchen and I understood the systems. So I was a bit older um, and I was transferring credits, right? So this was the coolest experience in the world for me because I loved what I was doing and I knew this is what I wanted to do. I was in there with some people who are a bit older than I was who had, this was a second career. And then a lot of young kids and the young kids who went to culinary school, you know, they, they didn't appreciate it. They didn't appreciate what they were getting into. Their parents wanted them to go there. They wanted to become the next Food Network star. Um, so it was a real mix of people. But what I tell people now is, is that don't go to culinary school until you've actually gotten some kitchen experience and some real world experience because you'll appreciate it a lot more and it will actually make sense. It's not all just kind of book smarts. So for me, having had all of this experience and then going to this brand new culinary school, it was the, it was the most amazing thing in the world because you have the top of the line equipment on absolutely everything, you know, and you'll spend a full course, which would be, it was 12 weeks just doing meat cutting, right? So bringing in primals, understanding meat, cutting chicken, lamb, everything from that perspective. Then you'll do a 12 week block on just sauces and soups. So you'll learn all the mother sauces. Then you'll do a 12 week block. on. Hold on, stop, stop, stop. What is it? What does a mother sauce mean? A mother sauce are the foundation of all classic French sauces, right? So bechamel, espagnol, um, tomato sauce, hollandaise, velouté, and demi-glace, right? So every single French sauce is a derivative of one of those sauces. When Escoffier wrote his culinary Bible, he started with the mother sauces, and then he would he did sauce like 27, and that was, you know, demi-glace, which is basically a classic rich beef gravy with a little bit of tomato in it. And then the next sauce, sauce 232, it was numbers. So you actually had to memorize thousands of sauces and then put this spin on each one of these sauces. That's how Escoffier, the grandfather of cooking, taught all of his young cooks. And in kitchens all the way up until the 1970s or 80s before Hout Cuisine took over, everything was a foundation of Escoffier's Bible of cooking. Gee, that is so cool. Okay, that's amazing. You learn the basics now, cutting meat. And, you know, I, 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 there is a science to it. We started off this video with breaking down a tuna. That's just breaking yeah. it down into its components. And then in terms of like, there's a science behind the grain, depending on what, how you're going to cook it, how thick. I mean, uh, can there be anything more fascinating if you're into this than studying uh, your passion? I mean, how, how cool? Let me, let me back that question up. What does a class look like? People love this or are there, like every other class, people who are bored, they don't want to be there uh, and don't appreciate how beautiful what they're learning actually is. Yeah, both, right? So you have people who appreciate it and then you've got, you know, kind of the rich spoiled kids whose parents told them they had to go there and, you know, they're just trying to sell dime bags on the side. This was, uh, you know, for me, it was 
just an unbelievable experience. And I appreciate every single second of it. I was, I, you know, I was, I was a, a, a brown noser. I, I spent more time with the chef instructors than I did with anybody else at the school because you've got the best equipment out there in the industry, right? Like your uniform, your shoes, your knife kit, everything is the absolute best of the best. And I knew that this was something that one, I hadn't experienced because even when I was work, doing my apprenticeship and working in other kitchens, it was, you know, you're trying to create food off of broken burners and equipment that's half functional. So to have the best of the best, I knew that that wasn't reality. So I definitely enjoyed it and kind of soaked it up. But, you know, we, we there were two class blocks, right? So class, the AM block was 6 AM until 2.30 PM. And then the, the later half was 3 PM until 9 or 10 PM, right? So I used to do the 6 a.m. till 2.30, and then I had my job that started at 3, and I would work from 3 until 11 p.m., and then I would drive an hour home and then turn around and do it the next day again at 6 a.m. So for a 21, 22, 23-year-old, you know, that was hard work, right? Everybody's going out and partying. They're just taking one class. I was working 60 hours a week alongside going to school full-time. So for me, this was a lot of work. Um, it, it was a push. Fascinating. Uh it ends with a degree. What do you do after you graduate? So I left, uh, I left my, the job that I was running. I ultimately worked my way up to chef de cuisine underneath the certified master chef. And then it was kind of time for him to release me into the wild. I ended up going back and working for the Ritz Carlton in Boston, the original old school Ritz Carlton right on the Boston common. Absolutely gorgeous. I was an East coast guy, Yankees fan. So maybe I wasn't in friendly territory in Boston, but I, uh, I went and worked in um, Boston uh, for the Ritz-Carlton for a couple of years. Into one year of doing that, I decided that, you know, 80 hours a week working at the Ritz-Carlton wasn't enough. So I actually would commute four days a week. Um, and then I would still work full time Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then I went back and got my business degree at the uh, in Providence at the college there. How many years did you do that for? Uh, did that for a year. I was able to get the business degree in a year. Amazing. Okay. And now, so look, we know that you, you got into, well, we're going to skip ahead to the franchise, but I don't think we we can. What what happens in between? You're now, give or take 26 years old. Yep. Uh, 26. And what do you do for the next decade of your life? Well, so at tw so after I was got my business degree, then I was deciding what I wanted to do. I was still cooking at the Ritz on the side. And my brother's brother, my brother-in-law's brother owned a coffee shop and a cafe up in New Hampshire. And he was trying to expand his kitchen and he had booked a ton of catering and his chef quit on him. So he called me and he said, can you work for me for two weeks, pull my kitchen together, get my business and books together and blow out this catering season going into summer. So I went up there one summer turned into a little bit over a year and we opened up another two restaurants connected with his shop. So that was my first foray into being an entrepreneur where we were actually opening and running restaurants and go and growing a, a, a business from a coffee shop into a large restaurant group. We were named the, the best bistro by Boston Globe. Um, we really put that restaurant on the map from a culinary perspective. So I did that for about a year and a half. And, uh, and then I went back to New Jersey and got, got back in the corporate scene, worked for Marriott as a corporate executive chef for a while. I had to get back to Jersey. I knew I needed to. And um, I knew I wanted a taste of the corporate side. So I did that for a couple of years. Um, and then in 2006 or seven, I took a job uh, in Asbury Park, New Jersey. I was a big music guy, still am. 
love punk rock, love the, the kind of, you know, the old Bruce Springsteen element of New Jersey. And in Asbury Park, which had become a complete dump, they got bought out by a redeveloper and they decided that they were going to redo the old Howard Johnson's Hotel and Restaurant right on the Asbury Park boardwalk. Iconic building. So I came in as the chef to redo that restaurant, which then we grew to a couple large restaurants into 2007, 2008. When the economy tanked in 2007, actually, I remember it was like October 12th, 2007, the restaurant company I was working for downsized and I lost my job, never lost my job before ever. Um, and I was actually going to go and open my own restaurant, but I was waiting for the economy to find some footing. So I got headhunted for this is this is crazy, right? So I have a culinary arts degree. I have a business food service management degree, and I have another degree in food marketing I got, right? They were, and my passion was sustainability and environmentalism. That, that was the foundation of my food for the previous five years was working with local farmers and understanding our food systems. I got an opportunity to start a nonprofit sustainable seafood program at the Aquarium of the Pacific. It was a three-year grant from the Pacific Life Foundation, and the focus was actually getting consumers and Americans to eat more well-managed, sustainable seafood. The way in which they wanted it done, because 80% of the seafood consumed in California was done so in restaurants, was to bring in a chef who had a marketing degree to educate other chefs about how to serve sustainable seafood, what it means. And they were looking for a chef with a business degree, a marketing background, and a and restaurant experience, which seemed perfect, right? So I took this opportunity and to run this grant. It was like a $600,000 grant um, for three years. And ultimately, after doing that for three years and working throughout California, understanding the restaurant industry and the seafood industry, I said, the reason people aren't eating enough seafood is because on the one end of the spectrum, you've got fine dining seafood. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got greasy fried seafood. But there's nothing in the middle that combines that quality of fine dining with the cost and convenience of fast food because consumers are cons concerned and confused about what sustainable seafood is. So I, I launched this business idea called Slapfish fish so fresh it'll slap you. I tried to raise money for it. Nobody would give me any money coming out of that recession. So I actually went down to a local food truck lot. This was before food trucks were the thing, before they were cool. And I paid, there was this, you know, these guys that would drive around to construction lots. I said, how much do you make in a week? They said, we make about $800 a week. I said, okay, I'm going to give you $900. I'm going to take your food truck. And I'm going to drive around to college campuses. And I'm going to sell lobster rolls because I still had these connections from college to get fresh lobster. I'm going to sell lobster rolls and fish tacos. And if it works and I make more than $900 a week to cover the, you know, to cover the nut for these guys, then I'm going to do it for another week. So that was the, that was the birth of Slapfish, um, which then I went from one to five food trucks over a five month period. And then I ended up um, bootstrapping for my first brick and mortar six months later. And then in four years, we had 10 restaurants. And then in eight years, we had 23 restaurants. That's and then we fascinating. I don't know if I'm allowed to ask this, but I'm going to ask it here. Then we're going to go over to Rumble exclusively and just end this on YouTube. You get a $600,000 grant for three years. What are the, yep. like, what, what, I mean, I, obviously you can't just take that $600,000 and, and pay yourself. So what are the metrics when you get that type of a grant in terms of uh, metrics of success, guidelines of, you know, guidelines or requirements in terms of how you disperse those funds or invest them? And before you answer that, ending on YouTube, people, come on over to Rumble in three 
the the link to Rumble is in the pinned comment of the chat on YouTube. We're going to get an answer to this question, and we're getting into the sustainability stuff, and then we're going to get into the politics, people. Come on over to Rumble. All right, done. We're off YouTube now. Uh, so they give you six hundred thousand dollars. What are, what are the criteria, the metrics of success? Uh, you know what you have to do with that money, what you're not allowed doing with that money, how much you can invest in yourself. H how does a grant like that work? So my salary was predetermined based upon what I kind of worked directly with the CEO of the aquarium, who's a brilliant man, Jerry Schubel, taught me so much about the, everything related to marine conservation and kind of ocean stewardship. But the metrics were kind of built out with the CEO of the Pacific Life Foundation, who was ultimately the one who signed off on the grant. So we determined that the number of restaurants that we were able to bring on board as partners to the program would be one of the metrics. Education, there was an educational component. So we would have to kind of justify how we were spending money in order to educate consumers and, um, and then how many consumers we could bring into the program. So I knew that it was going to be difficult to get chefs on board with this program because they were trying to run restaurants. That was kind of my the language I spoke. So I had to translate this properly to chefs. So what I convinced the aquarium to do was that if I could bring a restaurant on board to put the logo of our program on their menu next to the items on their menu that were sustainable by our standards, that we would give whenever, whenever a consumer ordered that item, we would give them a free ticket to the aquarium. So we would bring restaurants on board. Imagine going to a restaurant and you order the wild, you know, sockeye salmon and you get a free ticket to the aquarium. You want to bring your kids, so you order three more. You see, that's a way to financially incentivize people to eat more of the right types of seafood. I don't believe in demarketing anybody. So I'm not out there telling people what not to eat. I'm highlighting and celebrating the good products and the good farmers from an aquaculture perspective. So that was kind of the angle that I brought to this. And I think it was incredibly successful. We brought about 100 restaurants on board throughout Southern California. Um, but I was given a part of the budget to hire they were like, oh, hire an assistant or hire a marketing coordinator to help you with this program. And I said, I'm not going to do that because the one thing I understand is that science can be manipulated. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to hire a marine biologist with a science background and a focus on aquaculture because I'm not going to be manipulated by fake science. So that was what I spent my money on was hiring a real scientist to support the mission of the program. And I actually think it was the smartest move we ever could have made. Um, so I was backed with real science. Um, you know, who knew that decades, a decade later that, uh, you know, science would be so subjective, but that was my focus. Well, that, it's very interesting in terms of explaining later skepticism from the experts when you've had that type of experience. It's sort of like the RFK junior type experience, having dealt with environmentalists and environmental experts. And you know how it seems that both parties seem to get experts that say exactly what they want to say. And you can sort of filter through that. It makes you more skeptical and, and, and more intelligent going forward. Um, okay, so now getting into the certification business. I, in my practice, I've come across, um, say it's made me deeply cynical because you realize how more often than not those labels, those certifications, they're hogwash. They're oftentimes just licensed out for the sake of being licensed out. There's no real meaningful oversight or verification. And so the label makes you feel good about buying a product, but it actually doesn't assure you of any quality. It doesn't ensure any sort of... Um, What's the word environmentalist or, you know, quality control. So in the industry, is there not that same type of um, fraud for lack of a better word? Some of these, it some is, of these like tuna free. Okay. Sorry. So it, it fleshed that out for those who may not know what the nature of the fraud is and how you, how you went about making sure that what you said was good was in fact good and not just licensed out a label saying it was good. 
Well, the first thing I wanted to do, understanding that we had kind of a meager budget, was to try and partner with some of these larger organizations, environmental organizations. And I dove into all of them, from Greenpeace to Sea Shepherd to Blue Ocean Institute, Sierra Club, you name it, right? They're all intertwined, and they're all fighting for the same dollars. And the nonprofit world, I also realized, was a very, very competitive business, but it was very political um, because – there's always a, a few people who control these purse strings and you've got to say what they want you to say and you've got to kind of play the game. It's about sensationalism, creating controversy and ultimately scare tactics, fear mongering. That's what this all came down to. Well, we didn't like that approach. So I did not do a great job partnering with these organizations, although I got to know all of them very, very well. And, and you know, if I didn't demarket a particular product or say bad things about a particular product, then I wasn't going to be a partner of their program. But I wasn't going to do it. Now, I should also bring to this that I was very involved politically growing up, right? So I volunteered for two state senators. My mother was the first female commissioner of the police department in New Jersey. She was involved politically. My Let me stop was, you there for a second. Wh which yeah. senators, it's just so people can pigeonhole you politically, which senators were they? Democrat, Republican, Libertarian? Who, who were they? I was, well, they were Republican and I was the president of the Young Republicans Club. Oh, there you up. have it. You're done. You're done, Andrew. <laughs> okay, I, I'm, I'm tongue in cheek. Um, so politically, in, well, politically, uh, activist or, you know, involved in that type of sphere, even as a kid growing up. Yeah, so I understood how it worked. I truly understood the framework. And I was in I was in Model UN. I was in youth and government. We did mock legislature growing up in New Jersey. I wrote bills. I did all of that. I would I was the I was the kid that like would go to a field trip to Trenton, the state capital on the weekend. And and you would write mock bills and you would have these kind of fake legislative sessions with other high schools and you would try and get your bill passed and you would try and build a quorum. It was literally a mock legislature. It was pretty fascinating. So I understood how all of this worked. Now, I should say that as I went to college, I went to the most liberal college in New England, I think. And I was very, I, I, I really tapped into my kind of libertarian roots there because I was all over the place politically and have been since then. However, I understood from, from the a foundational perspective how this functioned and how it worked. So when I got into this program at the aquarium, I was very skeptical of working with these government organizations. I worked directly, the National Marine Fisheries Service, their office was across the street from us. The aquarium was connected with all of them. NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration that manages all of our oceans. We were very involved with them. I would speak at many of these events. I would go to all of these conferences and I got very involved. This, seafood is political. The ocean is incredibly political. Um, I'll try not to digress too much in that regard. But what I did learn running this program was is that we weren't gonna scare people. We weren't going to scare them away from eating seafood. We weren't going to scare them by demarketing other other proteins. And that the program, the proteins that were being demarketed across the industry, and that they were saying we're going to run out of fish and we're going to, you know, we're going to overfish our oceans and we can't eat seafood anymore. It was all fake. It was all junk science. It was 100% about the money. And you still see it to this day, right? Like these are environmental organizations are actually not friends of the environment. They're enemies of the environment. It is a financial industry for them to garner more money, to create more fear, to then garner more money. That's all what they do. They don't actually. What does, what does D-market mean? Practically. Um, so, 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 I, uh, so if I were to say eat this product because this product is bad, right? So I, so you see that oftentimes as the comparisons, right? The, the ER marketing, like we're bigger, better, right? Safer. It's always about comparing and juxtaposing one product to another. I don't believe in doing that if you're trying to help and prop one industry up because at the end of the day, all boats rise with a high tide. 
So if you're trying to demarket another product, let's use wild salmon versus farmed salmon. The wild salmon industry and the Alaskan Seafood Marketing Institute, which this is very dangerous what I'm saying right now because they probably will hate me, but they spend a lot of money towards trashing farm salmon and saying that farm salmon is the worst thing in the world. Friends don't let friends eat farm salmon, right? And then if you follow the flow of the money, um, Virginia Cruz did a big thing on this, Victoria Cruz, Virginia Cruz. Uh, if you follow the flow of money from, you know, kind of the demarketing campaigns from the Alaskan Seafood Marketing Institute through some of these environmental organizations, the Monterey Bay Aquarium, et cetera, you know, they're, they're all just kind of like creating this fear, building, raising money and then giving it to each other. At the end of the day, there's no reason to demarket farmed salmon you just educate consumers on it. Some is good, some is bad, right? They used to farm it in a way that was harmful to the environment and use chemicals. They don't do that anymore. It's actually not that bad for you. But what was what we found was that people just stopped eating salmon altogether, right? So it hurt Alaskan seafood as well because people stopped eating salmon because people don't differentiate between species. They think in constructs. So that was our approach was not to demarket anything, was to really just celebrate the good. Um, from an environmental perspective. But that goes against the the DNA of a lot of these organizations because you can't celebrate the good. You've got to focus on the bad because that's what scares people and that's what gets people to give you their money to try and save them from themselves. So that was really the, the foundation of, of what we did. And then I took it to a private, you know, the private side of things by starting my own business with that similar focus and then kind of putting my money where my mouth was. All right. So, and Slapfish was your, was your baby, was your business all along, like beginning to end? Yes. So I knew, so what I wanted to do was create a concept that was approachable and affordable where you could get people to eat more seafood. At the end of the day, our mission statement from Slapfish was to get people to eat more of the right types of seafood, increase the per capita consumption of seafood amongst all Americans, Canadians, alike, right? Because our, our seafood industries are very connected, Canada and the United States. Um, they're managed by the Department of Fish and Oceans. We're the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. But our per capita consumption of seafood globally is lower than most countries, right? So Korea is like 90 pounds per person. The United States is only 16 or 17 pounds per person. And yet we have this Western diet. We have this overindulgence in omega-6 fatty acids because of all the corn-fed, soy-fed beef and chicken that we eat. And then ultimately, a lot of the other stuff that's in our food, soy, sugar, high fructose corn syrups. So we have this, this imbalance of omega-6 fatty acids. Six of the eight leading causes of death in the United States can be alleviated to some degree by the regular consumption of omega-3 fatty acids, primarily found in seafood, DHAs, vitamin B, et cetera. So my, it, was, it was my perspective that if we got Americans to eat more seafood, that we decrease the, a lot of these Western ailments or these Western diet-focused diseases because we fix that imbalance. Now, ironically, that's become a talking point post-COVID, especially with all this seed oil craze, because the seed oil thing is all about that imbalance. Um, it's one angle to take in terms of trying to fix that imbalance. So that was my focus in terms of trying to get people to eat more seafood because you bring down healthcare costs, right? And then ultimately that helps the economy. It takes away the power from the pharmaceutical companies. And then the, the economy is in its, in its whole requires less subsidies and it's a stronger economy. So th that was how I saw it from day one. 
Let me ask you this because I, I don't think it, I, if I don't understand it, chances are other people don't as well. Yeah. What is the major difference between omega-6 and omega-3 fats? Yeah, so omega-3s are the good fats, right? Omega-3s are really good for you. The omega-6s, while they're not horrible for you, when you eat too many omega-6s, it causes inflammation in your body. So you and need a balance. A, when, uh, omega, are we, is, is it the difference or the conceptual difference like beef fats, like solid fats versus seafood fats? Like uh, I, I, I have trouble conceptualizing the difference between, between fats of animals. So the omega-3 fats would be only fish or lobster, shellfish, shrimp, that type of thing, anything coming out of the ocean versus omega-6 would be only beef or does it include chicken as well? Omega-6 omega, omega is, is primarily terrestrial-based protein um, and vegetables based upon the fact that they're being force-fed, subsidized corn and soy, et cetera. So you can have an omega-3 profile in beef and chicken based on what they feed them, right? So your free-range meat is going to be a lot lower in the omega-6 profile. And then furthermore, I, but think about it like this, right? Um, um, LDLs and HDLs, right? HDLs are your kind of happy cholesterols. And then the LDLs are the bad ones. And now they used to look at total cholesterol years ago, but now they look at that ratio of LD, you know, total cholesterol, LDL, and HDL. Your HDLs are your omega-3s, your LDLs are your omega-6s, right? Those are the bad ones versus the good ones. Now, of course, you need both. But the omega-6s that we found is that imbalance in our diet leads to all of these inflammations, which is the foundation or the root of so many issues in our Western diet, hypertension, diabetes, um, Actually, one of the eight leading causes of deaths is car accidents. So I'm not suggesting that seafood eating seafood is going to make you a better driver. Well, apparently, yeah, the people were suggesting that getting vaccinated would make you a better driver for those who missed that yeah. who missed that thorough, insightful yeah. analysis. Uh, and what that, we hear a lot of talk about inflammation. I'm not going to ask you this as a doctor. What does when people say you know the foods cause inflammation? What does that mean? What does that materialize like in the human body? Pain, joint pain. Um, you know, just generally feeling sluggish, tired. Uh, you know, inflammation in the body is, I mean, your cells, you know, your body is inflamed on the inside and it's not operating at its maximum strongest capacity um, based upon what you're eating. And that happens as a result of eating way too much sugars, some of the chemicals now that they're putting in our foods. And then of course, this imbalance in which I'm referring to, um, you know, but this, the, on the periphery of what goes into our food system and what's being fed, to the animals that are raised or being sprayed on our crops. I mean, over the past 20 to 30 years, the chemical use in our foods has just gotten completely out of control. And that's all at the hands of the government, right? And I noticed that early on in my culinary career when I started reading the labels more diligently on both commercial food products and then ultimately retail food products. And it's just gotten out of hand. I mean, there were some great books written about it, um, you know, Michael Pollan and Mark Bittman, there were some New York Times bestsellers on this. And, and what I find fascinating is, is that back in 2010, it was all about local foods and kind of, um, um, you know, unregulated food systems, right? Drinking raw milk and doing X, Y, and Z and, and, and pushing against this was big government, big ag and big, big pharma. The left, the liberals were the ones that were driving this revolution to eat local foods, right? They were the ones that were mad because they couldn't go to the farmer's market and eat unpasteurized cheeses, you know, at their elite parties. But then come 2020, they're championing big government, big pharma, big ag, big corporations. When 
when it was their mission back in 2010, when I started this program, I was considered just this crazy left winger because I was promoting sustainable, environmentally friendly food. And the, the narrative completely switched over a decade. And now I'm the conspiracy theorist when I talk about seed oils. I'm the conspiracy theorist when I tell the story of the Amish farmers who got raided by the feds because they were serving raw milk to those in their own community. Yep. It's, I, and gosh, Andrew, like there's a part of me, I am an idiot. I, I recognize that I'm an idiot, that I'm susceptible to influence by the media. Cause I, I, I was brought up thinking if you eat unpasteurized cheese or drink unpasteurized milk, you're risking your life. If you eat a uh, farm salmon, you're risking your life. Well, I've got, I, I growing up, I thought like if I eat raw egg, I'm going to get sick and die. Yeah. And that, that was it. Yeah. Um, and, and now, you know, I, we've been covering between Barnes and I, we've been talking about the Amish farmer. He's representing Amos Miller. We talked okay. about the, uh, the case coming out of the East Coast, the Maine lobsterman, where you realize yeah. how insidiously corrupt the whole labeling system is and, and, and it doesn't actually pursue the objectives that they wanted to pursue. Uh, but now the question is, set, set that tangent aside, explain to me the freak out or the, the craze about seed oils. I, I've, I've seen it. I have not cared enough about it to get into it. What is the craze about the seed oils? Everyone says avoid, avoid seed oils. What is it? And is there any, I mean, just educate us for those who don't know. Well, a lot of the seed oils, right? Canola oil, um, specifically, um, you know, so many of these seed oils, they're in all of our foods, right? Sunflower oil, and they're highly, highly, highly processed. There's no nutritional value to them. Uh, I mean, it, it's one step away from petroleum effectively. And these seed oils, once again, they're in everything because they're not just a preservative, but they also have a certain taste to them, fat is flavor. Every food manufacturer uses them. They're in nuts. I mean, look at your almonds. They're going to be cooked in canola oil. They don't need to be. You can just pick a nut and bake it. And what happens is these seed oils, once again, it's all about these omega-6s. They're so rich in these omega-6 fatty acids that it's creating that inflammation. Just watch a video on how these seed oils are mass produced. Um, it, it's... I think for me, you know, I'm not kind of binary on my approach to this conversation. It's not all or nothing because I don't think you can fully get away from seed oils. But it's it's the seed oil craze has been the it, it dovetailed out of the margarine craze, right? So if you go back and you and you and you read the history and you understand this push for hydrogenated fats um, and trans fats in the American diet, it all started in the 50s and the 60s. And it was about the merging of these massive food companies with the American Heart Association, which was nothing more than a, than a propaganda arm of the government who, who endorsed these endorsed margarine and these trans fats, which we've now since come to learn is the worst thing in the world for you. It's horrible. But for years, you couldn't even speak out against it. There's a scientist, and I, I'm drawing a blank on his name, where he actually came out and was like, these margarine is horrible. You should not be eating any of these hydrogenated fats, these trans fats. They're going to kill you. It's going to create hypertension, diabetes, cancer, all of this horrible stuff, which we have now known to become true. He was completely blacklisted from absolute every single industry. None of his work was ever published again. He was never allowed to go to a conference again. I mean, he basically went into hiding. And there, there was a there was a book written about this. And I got to I got to find the name. I listened to it when I'm, I was I'm, traveling. I'm looking I'm looking in the chat to see if anybody's getting the name first. Uh, you know, uh, chef, I was brought up on that. Butter was bad. Margarine was good. And like, yep. I, I, not to say that I don't trust anything anymore, but I don't trust anything anymore, except I trust people who are trustworthy. And which is why like, I, I've, I've been following you for quite a while now and it's fascinating stuff. Okay. So hold on. Uh, okay. So we got the, we got the seed oils. Uh, 
farmed versus and, is there any consensus on the farmed fish versus the wild because i've you know i i go to the store and it's like okay wild it might have more mercury if it's depending on where it's feeding farmed it's going to have antibiotics and whatever depending if it's being fed pellet foods is there any consensus on farm fish versus wild or does it just depend on where it comes from there, there's a consensus forming so the perspective that i took when i started with the aquariums program is the same perspective i have today. I have not changed that. And it, and it's, it's uh, a little bit of everything, right? First of all, we always have to break thing down, break things down into opposite constructs. So everybody thinks it's a yes or no question. It's farmed or it's wild. Well, there, there is no, there's no new nuance. Although it's in the industry, let's take Alaskan seafood, for example, always marked. Right. I bet people don't realize and look this up on the Department of Fish and Game site. 60 percent or maybe a little bit less of Alaskan seafood starts off in hatcheries. So they actually will start in these like in buildings and they'll 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 get the eggs of the row of the salmon and then they'll raise them out and then they'll put them in these open ocean net pens and then they release them into the wild and then the fishermen catch them. So that's okay. stock fortification. Technically, that's farming, if you ask me. Right. Like that's not a truly wild species, but Alaskan seafoods marketing, they, they, they market salmon as always wild, never farmed. But that's a lie. That's the point. And it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. You should celebrate the fact that you're utilizing aquaculture in order to fortify species of fish in Southern California in the late 1980s. California white sea bass went commercially extinct. They didn't understand. They, they, the science had been moving forward in order to take population samples of different fish um, fisheries or fish species. And they realized that no one was catching this fish anymore because it had gone commercially extinct. So Don Kent, who's a scientist with Hub SeaWorld, he created a program where they would fortify. They would actually raise these white sea bass to fingerlings and they would release them into the wild. They were by utilizing this aquaculture mechanism, they were actually able to take it from commercially extinct to at its maximum sustainable yield within five years. They've completely refortified the stock and it's still wild, right? It's marketed as wild. You can eat California white sea bass everywhere. It's a great industry. So to say that farm seafood is a bad thing is is a lie. Number one, if you've ever eaten an oyster or a mussel or a clam, they're all farmed. They They've always been farmed. Farming's been around for hundreds and hundreds of years, hundreds of thousands of years. The problem, okay, is where it's being farmed. Now, here's the irony, right? So, so re get ready for this one. In the United States, 65% of the seafood that we consume, if not more now, is farmed, okay? 85% of that is imported. We only inspect 2% of all the import, seafood imports, but the FDA only inspects 2% of all seafood imports. Well, guess where all that seafood is farmed? China, Vietnam, Indonesia, countries that have no regulatory framework to farm their seafood. Well, you think to yourself, holy moly, and just so you know, true, one of the largest trade deficits behind oil and automobiles is seafood. So you think to yourself, well, why don't we just do it here in the United States? We are one of the only countries where you're not allowed to farm in the open ocean. We do not even have a regulatory framework in order to farm seafood in the United States. NOAA doesn't. The National Marine Fisheries Service doesn't because all the environmental groups have lobbied the government not to allow it to happen. And they say it's because of the environment. I don't believe that. It's a, no, it's a I mean, it, it's because of their environment and all that they're doing, like they're doing with the green energy cars, is outsourcing the pollution to countries that don't regulate the environment so that we don't have to see the pollution here. That yep. and, you know, maybe a little overregulation in terms of salaries and work, I mean, not, not work conditions in a bad way, but it makes it uneconomical 
to do it here, yep. even if there were the regulatory framework. But no, it's, it's like the environmentalists are not saying no pollution. They're just saying no pollution in my backyard. Um, yep. And, 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 and I, I, this is why I, I don't buy tilapia. First of all, I, I don't like the way it tastes, but I think like 90% of all tilapia in North America comes from China or, or Chinese, China fisheries and nothing against China. It's just like, I, I, I would rather know that the food is local to the extent that, 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 I, that I can. Um, sorry, I cut you off there. No, 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 it's good. Well, the joke I make is when does an environmentalist, um, when does a developer become an environmentalist? Hold on there. I, I think I'm going to get this. When does an, a developer become an environmentalist? Well, obviously the punchline is going to have to be when it increases the, the value of the land, but I don't know how that's going to materialize into the joke. When they buy their house at the beach. Okay, that's good enough. <laughs> All right, understood. So, um, so, so you know, so we don't we won't farm in the United States, um, but it could it could be our number one industry, right? Like we've got the most innovation. We've actually produced much of the technology to be able to farm in a sustainable manner. Because if you think about it, right, the exclusive economic zone is two hundred miles off the coast of America. So, by way of drawing the exclusive economic zone off the coast of America, we basically own the majority of the ocean in the world. We have the largest ocean in the world by way of our exclusive economic zone. We could be using the deep water. We could be using the tides and the currents in order to farm in spheres, right? So you, you basically, you create these massive open ocean spheres that then move with the currents so that any of the pollution or the effluent, the poop coming off of these little spherical farms, they just get wiped away in the tides. I mean, it's, it's, it's negligent in the grand scheme of the well, ocean. And not just that, other animals eat it. Like you'll end up, your shrimp and your lobster yeah. are going to end up eating the fish poop, which is what they do. Well, yeah, the benth it actually helps the benthic environment. They found in Canada, specifically in Vancouver or, or off uh, Campbell River, that the areas in which they had fish farms in the more inland areas that the benthic environment has been rehabilitated over the years because of the nitrogen in the fish poop. And they follow those out, right? So they'll grow... By fallowing, I mean, they'll like have a farm there for, you know, six months and then they fallow it and then they move it to another place. So there's environmental mechanisms in place whereby they can regulate this properly. We could have a massive industry here in the United States. So instead, what we do is we develop the technology and then we ship it to Mexico, Costa Rica, Costa Rica. We sell the technology to China or they copy it, Indonesia, Vietnam, any of these other countries. And then we import it back. I mean, it's completely upside down. And I'm, I'm not wrong also in, I think I understood this or learned this when I got into, I had my chef, let me get my dog. My dog is driving me crazy whining. Give me 30 seconds. Okay. Oh, sorry. We're in a uh, we're in a different location, so the dog seems to have gotten stuck somewhere where she, she she's paralyzed in the back legs and couldn't get up a, a an unknown stuff. Um, client like farmed oysters, farmed shellfish. I, I I on the one hand, I didn't fully appreciate that it could also be much safer, and that you're not getting it out of areas which might have underlying pollution. Uh, but also that farming these things actually cleans the ocean out. Like these are na these are the ocean's filters, and so in theory. Not only is it not environmentally unfriendly, it's actually quite environmentally friendly to do this. Are these industries not being exploited, not being uh, you know, taken full advantage of in, in America? If we if we took oyster if we if we seeded oyster farms along all of the coasts of America, especially in areas where there's a lot of outflow from agriculture, let's take for example the Chesapeake Bay, which used to be the most vibrant marine habitat, but then it was became an 
a dead zone because of all the fertilizers running down from like New York and all those chicken farms. It killed. It became an oxygen dead zone. So it killed much of the sea life there. They rehabilitated it by seeding it with oysters. Oysters will completely clean a marine environment. It's fascinating. If we did that around the United States, we could have some of the cleanest oceans. But you can't get through the permitting process to do so. That's the problem is, is that the way these things are overregulated, the permitting process takes so long that you just can't get it done. It'll take 10 years. They've been talking about developing a permitting process for open ocean aquaculture managed by the National Marine Fisheries Service, NOAA. And I mean, it's been 10 years since I've been talking about it with the aquarium and absolutely nothing has been done. Now, you can do some farming projects that's managed by the Department of Fish and Game or state jurisdictions, um, coastal. But then you can also do land-based aquaculture. The problem with land-based aquaculture, while it's the most environmentally friendly theoretically, because you, it's a closed-loop system, right? Like you can really control it. If Just imagine like an above-ground pool and raising fish in it. It's just so energy-intensive that it'll never be environment or economically viable unless it's heavily subsidized. Oh, okay. Uh, okay, very interesting. Um, now... Chef, uh, we're, we are going to get into the COVID stuff, and we got sort of sidetracked on all on, on all yeah, this. Sorry. No, no, I, I I love it. It's fascinating, and I know people are are, are very much interested in this now, especially you know, getting healthy foods and, and seeing the attack on the Amish. Um, how, so you, you have slapfish. I need to end up, understand how did you end up in Orange County, of, of all well, places. So- so, so the aquarium program was in Long Beach. So I went from New Jersey out to Long Beach, which is basically is, is the county right north of Orange County. And I lived in Orange County because I understood the, the difference in politics between Orange County and Los Angeles. Um, and I, uh, so I knew that I needed to start slapfish in an area where, that was interested in seafood and marine focused. Now, Huntington Beach, California is Surf City, USA, right? And this is a point I think that is very important if we're going to talk about lab-grown meat. But the stewards of the environment are the surfers, the fishermen, the people who use, utilize the ocean for, for business and recreation. No better place to understand sustainable and real seafood than in a surf community because these are the people that live and work the ocean. So when I opened Slapfish there, I knew that I would have an audience in which the notion of sustainable and well-managed seafood would resonate. Because in 2010 and 11, that was really just a buzzword. And it still is a buzzword. Um, and, you know, the reason I draw that parallel with the lab-grown meat thing is, as I say, when we get rid of farmers and we put everybody in a white lab coat, who are who, those are the people that take care of the environment. So if this is all being done under the pretext of this is environmentally friendly, but you're, you're wiping out all of the soldiers for the environment because you're putting them in lab coats and then big buildings blocked off from nature. All right. So uh, you do slap slapfish for a decade. You run this. Uh, you learn. You you end up franchising some of the locations out. It's not all owned by you the entire time. Yeah. So I started with one food truck. Went to four food trucks in five months, and then I sold those, and then used that to bootstrap my first brick and mortar location. We bought an old dilapidated bagel shop for like ninety thousand um, dollars, and made that our first location. And we and then every week, if we sales would go up, we'd build a booth, we'd build a wall, we'd build a kit part, another piece of the kitchen. This was true bootstrapping. Um, and then I wanted to grow this thing and scale it as quickly as possible. That was ultimately my goal, which is why I did fast casual, which is where you kind of order at the counter, you get a number and you sit down less expensive. Um, price point was around 10 to $15 for lobster rolls, good fish tacos, simply grilled fish plates. But I brought that 
kind of high quality because my my finer dining background came came in. I knew I needed to raise money, and I couldn't raise money. Right, I was not the guy who had the father with you know a million dollars to connect me to some private equity firm. Nobody would loan me money. Banks don't lend money. Period. Banks are the enemy. They will never loan money to a restaurant. Um, and the only other way that I could grow and scale this thing quickly was franchising. So I very quickly had to learn what franchising meant, how to do it, how to register an FDD, how to become a franchisor. And I always joke, I say, once you become a franchisor, you go from being a chef to uh, babysitting high net worth individuals. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, um, I, I mean, I've, I've had some limited professional experience with franchises. First of all, I mean, the, there's an animosity between the, the, the franchisor and the franchisee. And it's sort of like a landlord tenant relationship when it's not done properly, when it's done properly, it's a symbiotic, uh, wonderful relationship where the franchisors do what the franchisee wants to do, but is incapable of doing just because scaling at that level is, is very difficult. Um, mm -hmm. you, you, you run this for a decade. You sold it in 2022 to, uh, a football player. Well, so I brought on a partner in 2019 or 28, 2019, a large financial partner, family fund. Um, yes, he was a former football player for the Houston Oilers, and it was part of his kind of equity fund, if you will, um, to invest in restaurants. They were building out their restaurant division. So that capital helped us not just grow the infrastructure, but it also helped us through COVID. Um, well, and, that's, uh, that's, that was that's really what we're important. getting to. Okay, now, so the, so you're right. I mean, yeah. look, you're in California. You're running this now from, two, we'll say 2012 up until the world shuts down in 2020. The world shuts down in 2020. And uh, again, uh, had this experience as an attorney who worked with restaurants. People don't understand what happened to restaurants. I mean, it's, every, it's nice. Everybody says, well, businesses shut down. And, and it, it was particularly bad for some businesses. But I mean, it was the lights out for bars. It was lights out for restaurants. It was lights out for a lot of stuff. How, how does it happen? You're in California and the word comes down. We're shutting down for two weeks uh, and every, it's all going to be fun and dandy. In two weeks, everyone can open back up. W what, what did that do to your life when the orders came down, shutting down the world? Well, keep in mind, restaurants are a cash flow business. So you rely on tomorrow's cash flow to fund yesterday's debt. And restaurants are all based on credit terms, et cetera. This is not like, uh, you know, every restaurant is sitting with millions of dollars in a bank account. Most restaurants have $5,000 in a bank account. And, you know, some days it's $50,000 and then payroll hits and it's back down to five. And then they build it up and they build a clientele. And then hopefully you can sock some of that away over time. Restaurants are not profit machines. So, you know, from our perspective, it was like, look, we're trying to build this business and we're investing in infrastructure and we've got expenses, right? You've got salaries, you've got electricity, you've got bills that are due. And when you can't, suddenly you shut down one day and there's no income coming in, you still have all those bills to pay. Like everything is still due. So what ended up, the way it worked out is, is that when everything shut down, it's not as if the people that you owe money to, right? Your electric bill, your, you know, your linen your, bills, la your landlord, your la landlord, your landlord supply, some, some of which are, are very perishable that you're not going to get rid of for two weeks. Yep. You lose all your product, number one, right? So you're sitting on $15,000 of inventory per store. You lose all of that. Um, theoretically, and then you, all your due st bills still came due. Like this is what people don't realize is when the government drove the truck through the living room and said, shut down, they didn't, no one paused, you know, the, the, the nobody paused the bills. 
Like the bills were still due. The government didn't stop people. Yeah, I know that it, it, then it ultimately became a long-term debate about like stu the student debt crisis and student loans, et cetera. Yeah, those people, the government said, you don't have to pay. And I know that ultimately the government got involved with the landlords, but not commercial landlords, right? Like our bills were still due. Our landlords didn't care. Um, so it was a real scary time because we had just taken on this investor and we were already in a, in a, in a financially precarious situation because we were putting out so much infrastructure way ahead of ourselves to then garner more revenue. That's how it works in business. Go look at the, you know, the IPO or the financial statements of any massive restaurant and they're all losing millions of dollars um, in the hopes to then get it all back. So, so we had all this inventory and, and we just kind of were like, look, we're not going to wait for somebody to tell us what to do. So it was kind of a fend for yourself, my wife and I and my family. And we just started cooking all the food we had. We started giving it away to people because we weren't going to let it go to waste. We had a ton of gloves in the restaurant. We actually had masks that we could get through the restaurant. So we opened up our, our flagship store to the public and said, look, you want food, you want toilet paper, you want gloves, you want masks, whatever you need, it's on us. We got you taken care of. We're going to figure this out. Um, and, uh, that was kind of like where I dove headfirst in immediately when the pandemic hit the day of, uh, that was our approach. Just to let everybody know, I forget exactly what the stat is. Like something like 80% of restaurants go belly up within one to two years. Is that, is that, is that it? Or is it worse than that? Yeah, it's around that, uh, you know, 60 to 80, the numbers, there's a lot of books written about this, but let's just say restaurants have a high failure rate. So COVID hits, I, I mean, this is where people are going to love you. You're, you're, you're sitting on restaurants, you have inventory, you have staff. Um, I, I know of your, your business philosophy in terms of, you know, who you take on in terms of employees. Let the world know about this. And when, when it hits, you get up there and you start cooking and giving it away for, I mean, giving it away. What was your response when the pandemic hit and you, you had to do something? Yeah. I mean, for us, it was just about, it was, okay, how are we going to take care of our team members? How are we going to take care of our employees? I mean, these are, these, these people are like family to us. They've been working with us for since the food truck and we know them, we know them, we know their kids, we know everybody. And, um, they don't have lifelines. Um, you know, nobody did. So we kind of took it upon ourselves to really act as that community center. And it wasn't just giving it away and helping out our team members, but it was also, it was the first responders in the beginning, right? It was the police officers. It was the medical workers. It was the hospital workers. It was everybody. And, uh, you know, we just kind of tried to go with every single day's bit of information as we learned that early on that, that, that there was no surface to surface spread. Um, that wasn't highly publicized, crazy enough. But once we learned that that was the case, we started, OK, we wrote a playbook, right? Like we had our own internal playbook for how to deal with avoiding cross-contamination and avoiding any types of interactions whereby COVID would be an issue. The one thing that we did, I think that we didn't have any COVID in our restaurants with any of our team members. Now, ultimately we did as obviously some of these new variants came out and everybody got COVID, COVID eventually. But in the beginning we had none. And uh, you know, what I told my team members were, look, if you feel sick, if you were, you came across anybody who was sick, if, if, if anybody in your orbit was sick or you're afraid, don't come to work and we'll pay you. I'll figure out how, but we're going to pay you 100%. We're going to keep paying you. So stay out for seven days if you have to. And I think what I saw in the restaurant industry, was that nobody was paying anybody to take time off and the government wasn't providing any of that money. Um, and so people were going to work sick and that's where there was a lot of this internal spread in tight kitchens. Well, we, di we didn't have any of that. 
Um, and we, we built out our restaurant early on in order to be very friendly with takeout and, and um, delivery. I was driving food around to people. So we were able to kind of establish this financial lifeline by way of maybe pushing the envelope a bit. But for, but for us, it was just about reading every day's data to understand what we could and couldn't do. And we didn't want to cross lines, but I think there was a consensus amongst people that socially distancing at the time it was wearing masks, coming in and getting food wasn't an issue. We knew that within a week or two. Uh, yeah, you're reading your own data, Andrew. You're not allowed doing your own research. You have to defer to the experts. I, I was just thinking of this last night in, in getting ready for this, you know, this interview. When did, when did anybody uh, determine in, by way of any study that plexiglass uh, plexiglass dividers did anything? Like It, it seems that it, I'm just trying to relive it back in, in my memory. It just happened. There wasn't any studies that said this is good. It's just, okay, you're going to have plexiglass dividers in all of your restaurants, um, even for takeout. Do, do, was, there any, was there any research that you recall on that specific issue, plexiglass? No, absolutely no research. But I did see that it was kind of a way in which we could, uh, we could establish like an, uh, an artificial level of comfort with our, with our guests. Um, so we got the plexiglass quickly. And of course, it was nowhere to be found. I mean, I had to buy plexiglass, uh, you know, out of the back of a Cadillac at 3 a.m. by, you know, behind 7-Eleven. There was like a black market for plexiglass. Um, but I think it was an extension of the mask, right? It's, it, that's a typical process is like go big, right? Oh, well, we have this mask which blocks off where we breathe. So let's basically build big plastic masks everywhere. You know, I think that's what it was. But only to find out, right, typical unintended consequences is that it actually made it worse because it was yep. isolating COVID. It was creating compartments yeah, whereby it could breathe. Well, that's it. When they, when they determined that good air circulation was the best way to, to, to you know, maintain safety in public areas, setting up these little cubicles of, of enclosed air and not just that apparently it just created another surface that people had to wash or clean or keep clean. Um, but now one of the experiences or, or one of the experiences, the experience of a lot of restaurateurs, at least in Quebec and Canada, given these these orders, uh, you know, just willy nilly put up put up uh, plexiglass, uh, you know, reduce your occupancy to uh, one fifth of your regular whatever. And then these restaurants would invest in all of this protocol compliance only to have the government say either we're, we're still not opening up and you've just blown 10, 15, 20 thousand dollars getting your store prepped up. I, I presume that was the same environment in California. Hundred percent, hundred percent. It was the exact same thing. You know, plexiglass, gloves, masks, all the stuff that you had to buy now. New chemicals, right? And only to not be able to open. Number one in California, and then number two for them to tell you that it didn't mean anything, right? It had no effect. So I want to. We spent probably fifteen thousand dollars on. Now hold, hold on a second, and, uh, chef. Chef, you've gone, you've gone more robot uh, digital than, than before. Let me see if this is bad for everybody here. Uh, hold on a second. Is Chef lagging a lot? Let me see if it came back. Okay, try, try it again. Let's see if we're smoother now. Yeah, you're moving smoothly. Okay, so sorry, what, what were you saying about uh, the government in, in, imposing these, these, these requirements and then changing the, what do they call them, the guidelines from one day to the next? Yeah. I mean, the guidelines changed from one day to the next. And there were certain things where there was like consensus that we knew was real. Like I said, the no surface to surface spread, but yet still we had to wipe absolutely everything down. You know, we had to use all these chemicals in order to do so and hand sanitize absolutely everything. And, you know, I mean, it was just silly. We kept investing and investing and investing, but then we weren't allowed to open. At the end of the day, that's what it came down to. 
is regardless of the you know the means by which they tried to get you to have a safer environment they still weren't going to let you open so it was all conjecture right it was it was show um now uh when did you start get, i mean you've been involved in politics model un etc cetera, etc cetera, but i don't know that you were always so vocal on social media when did you finally say all right the 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 seal has been broken and i'm going to get vocal now uh, vocally on social media platforms when they shut down the beaches in in uh, southern california so we were getting ready for a huge fourth of july weekend because a lot of our restaurants had the ability to have outdoor dining and we were we would do caterings right because the fourth of july in southern california is huge people you know buy a bunch for catering so we buy all of our product going into the 4th of July. I remember it was on like a, like a Thursday. I mean, thousands and thousands of dollars worth of product. We staffed up to the brim and Newsom comes out and shuts down all the public beaches in Orange County. And it was the stupidest thing in the world because now what's going to happen? You're going to have everybody have private parties at the homes as opposed to out in these public spaces that are open air. And then you're going to end up exacerbating theoretically any of the spread because by their standards, now everybody's going to be indoors. Everyone canceled their trips. Business was dead. Um, we lost all of that product. I still kept my staff on because I wanted to pay them. Uh, it was a massive money loss for us. And the fact that he could just the trigger at the last minute and completely ruin all of these businesses it wasn't just us it was everybody um and that's when i really started getting vocal and speaking out about it and of course then everybody attacked me as being oh you want grandma to die you're anti-science you're just an idiot you know right winger blah 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 and i'm like look you know if you guys are going to put me in that category and it's and there's no nuance to this conversation then i'm going to go all in and that's kind of when i got really vocal about all the stupidity and everything that was going on Andrew, uh, chat is saying maybe try closing down certain applications on your computer that you might not need to be running in terms of getting a smoother, a smoother connection. You're, are you, are you, you're in California now? Okay, let's, uh, <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's say the, the, the internet connection, it, uh, the joke is that the internet connection in, in Canada is oftentimes very bad because of our, uh, our, our communist government propensities, but this is coming from commie California. So at least, at least it's on, it's, it's the California connection, not the Canadian side. Um, okay. But even still, we'll work through it. It, it. it is what it is, as we say. So you start getting vocal. Uh, I mean, what, what is your, what's your reaction when, when people basically tell you to shut up and sit down? I mean, like uh, you, you've been in California for a while. Is the, is the backlash you're getting on social media different the same or uh or or not at all the same as to the the, the re responses you get in real life daily in california like is is it is it noticeably more, not more toxic but more exaggerated on social media compared to how everybody else uh viewed things in real time in california yeah there was a lot more and i was in orange county but there was there was a reasonable uh, you know approach to this i think amongst most people and yeah social media exacerbated it amplified the insanity um, but even those handful of people that were insane, they came out, they came out, they would, they would harass us. Um, you know, we got, we got tagged and targeted by a lot of these Antifa organizations for speaking out. When I spoke out against Newsom specifically, I became a huge target. Um, I, uh, um, I went on a rant that went viral where I called Newsom an a-hole because he was shutting down outdoor in California, uh, going into the holidays. And that was the stupidest thing in the world because I could, 
as I said in the rant, I could go through Walmart. I could buy Burger King inside Walmart. This is 400 meters from my restaurant. I could go inside Walmart. I could get Burger King and I could eat Burger King throughout Walmart, not without a mask on and pile on top of each other, buying products going into the holidays. But I couldn't serve people food outdoors at my restaurant 400 meters away in a huge open air patio where nobody was near each other. Uh, without um, hypothesizing too much I mean, or sending too much like a conspiracy theorist, what is your belief as to the people who, who get angry at you? Are, are these like NPCs? Are these, are these government paid uh, individuals? Or are these just you know, genuinely fearful individuals who have bought into the government propaganda who now think that you're the reason why they are not safe? Both, both. But I will say this. There was a large group of very highly wealthy um, Orange County liberals who targeted us via Facebook groups and would start boycotts. And they actually ha would have people stand outside and take photos of myself and my, my family or my wife and post them with me without a mask on, talking to a guest, calling me an anti-masker, calling me a, you know, a COVID idiot, all of these you know, little terms that they created. They would actually like stalk us. It was pretty sick. Um, and we business was great. We stayed open. Business was phenomenal. Business was like 600% up. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. We had people driving two hours to come to our restaurant to support what we were doing. And we, um, we, we you know, it, it goes to show you that this parallel economy isn't a joke. It's a real thing. Well, uh, do people understand who you, how many employees do you have or how many did you have at, at the, at April, 2020? Well, directly under our control corporately, we had over a hundred, but across the enterprise, we had probably five or 600. What are the people are not necessarily um, all that in tune with the demographic of, of this industry? What types of workers do you have? Like what types of people are these liberals, uh, you know, the, the peace loving liberals shutting down? What, what types of employees do you have? I mean, we, we everyone from kind of like hardworking families, um, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, immigrants, mostly immigrants who work for us. It's 50 50. It's like 50 percent immigrants who work for us, who have like multiple kids and families that they have to support who live paycheck to paycheck. Um, and then you've got, you know, kind of younger high school and college students who are working to, you know, make a little bit of extra money on the side. And then you've got people who this is their career and they're using this as a stepping stone, either they're in management or they're trying to get into management. The, the hospitality industry is one of the most diverse industries of all industries. You know, they say six out of every 10 people have worked in hospitality in some capacity in the world. Um, so it's a pretty diverse you know, subset of people. Um, and now, so you have people protesting, picketing, et cetera. I think a lot of us learned that the people who boycott and protest the most are not the actual ones spending the dollars. Um, any actual meaningful acts of violence, acts of vandalism, or mostly just noise? And did it affect the patrons of your businesses? Like it's one thing to sit outside and, and, and picket you as a, as a far-right anti-vaxxer, anti-mask extremist, were the patrons getting harassed? And if they were, did they care? The patrons weren't getting harassed. Um, and, you know, we had some, you know, a little bit of vandalism at night, but nothing in front of the guests. I mean, I would say that we did lose some business from certain guests. You know, they've written to me and said, and we, we got, you know, they did the, the yellow stream of like, 
this guy's a COVID idiot, et cetera. But Yelp shut some of that down. They allowed some of it to slip through. But once again, when you look at the metrics, our sales were up massively. Um, and when I spoke out against Newsom and that one went viral nationally and I was thrown in the spotlight uh, instantaneously, we, I started having a lot of people reach out to me and they said, look, we, we, we want to help you. I mean, can we just send money to your restaurant? I said, look, I'm not going to try and grift off of this, you know, five seconds of fame. What I, what I do need help for is, is that I have, when they shut down outdoor dining in December of 2021, I think it was, or the end of 2020, all of these people lost their jobs because you had, first of all, you had the holidays. Um, the, when they shut down outdoor dining, restaurants were like, we're done. We're totally done. We're, we, we, we can't afford to have anybody on anymore. So all these people lost their jobs and were laid off. And then the government in California had misappropriated like $60 billion in unemployment money. I don't know if you recall that. So vaguely. All the people who all the people who were fired couldn't even get unemployment. The government's like, oh, sorry, we'll get it to you in a couple months. So there was they, they, they shut down outdoor dining and they were like, sorry, nothing we can do to get you money. What 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 are people supposed to do? When was it that they shut down the outdoor dining, but then they allowed some movie shoot to have a set like yep. within the vicinity? I forget the, the details of that story. Do you remember that? That was that was at this exact time because Angela Marston, who was the owner of that restaurant who brought that to light because I was kind of going on my media tour. We did a lot of hits together talking about that in California. It was at the exact same time. Um, and that was the hypocrisy. That was the absolute insanity. Yeah. If you were, if you were involved in, in Hollywood or in movie, movie studios, no problem at all. They were still filming. They were still doing absolutely everything. Catering companies were on top of it. Um, but it was at that point that I said, okay, if all these people are trying to support us, what can we do to help? So we actually started a fund to raise money for struggling and out of work restaurant workers. Um, and we, we wanted to raise $10,000 and I was going to distribute it in $500 increments. I figured I could help 20 families by giving them $500 to help with Christmas gifts, keeping the lights on, perhaps paying part of rent going into the holidays. And, uh, we ended up raising over $500,000. Um, and I remember, Remember, the money was coming in so fast and we were trying to help so many people and so many businesses that like Christmas Eve, I was driving around. We had just had a new baby. I was driving around. It was me, the newborn, my wife and the kids uh, paying landlords with cash to pay people's rent because we had we had been raising money so quickly that we wanted to spend it and help people as quickly as possible. It was like a it was like a it was, it was a 24 hour job. I mean, it was unbelievable. Uh, Plus, we had to vet these people out. That, well, that that's where, you know, no good deed goes unpunished and the road to hell is paved in good intentions. Like you end up, some people might, you know, misappropriate some of the funds, not you rather, but people make false claims and you're, you're dealing with hundreds of thousands of dollars trying to do your best and you can't vet everybody out. How, how, practically speaking, how did you, what was the vetting process to make sure you're not giving money to those who might not truly need it? So my wife, we had the newborn. The baby was born October uh, 21st. And, this, is your, uh, this is your fourth fourth child, correct? This is our fourth child, correct. And the baby was born okay. October 21st. And uh, so my wife was home with the baby a lot. I was running the restaurant. So what she would do is, is that she would wait for the baby to nap and she would call. The, we had an online form where you would fill out, you'd tell us your story. And this went nationwide. So we were helping people in, in New York. We were helping people in all different states. And um, those were the most restrictive. We obviously gave gave preference to the local restaurants. We, Lauren would call all of their employers. She would call their references and their employers and she would hear their story, hundreds of people. 
And um, like, for example, in one case, one of the employers called, she called one of the employers and the employer starts crying to Lauren. She's like, not only am I losing this employee, I'm going to lose all of my employees. We're going to shut everything down. So we said, how many employees? It was 13 employees. So we wrote $13,000 in checks to 13 of her employees. She laid them off. She ended up hiring them back. And we did a huge thing on us on with Lester Holt on the whole restaurant. So everybody was able to take six weeks off because of the money we gave them. And then she hired them all back and got really busy in February and nobody lost their job and her business ended up thriving. Um, we've since stayed in touch with her. Uh, you know, we, we actually ended up with our new restaurant. We had an employee came and she was like, Oh, you don't know this, but you guys gave me money two and a half years ago. And then she ended up coming and working for us. So it was like all of these stories, I want to say we, we, we ended up, it was 500 plus thousand dollars that we raised and we were giving away 500 to $1,000. So just imagine how much time that was vetting people out, getting to know people, hearing their stories, and then ultimately delivering them the cash or the funds. Uh, it's not something most people would do, especially since even when you're doing something like that, there's no shortage of accusations you're going to face while doing it um, and set aside the yep. risks. Now, something you said on another podcast and, and I, we've also seen it here is that even after set aside the devastating impact of these idiotic, you know, unscientific policies from the get go, even once all of these restrictions were starting to be lifted, people could go back to work, but they're simultaneously getting paid by the government to sit at home in Canada. I just noticed all the restaurants were not able to, not all, a lot of restaurants were not opening or had these wonky business hours. And I was asking all them, what, what's the deal? And they say, we literally cannot find staff because no, we're get, people are getting paid 2000 bucks a month. They don't want to go and work for $2,500 a month. And I understand that you had that similar, you, you noticed that similar phenomenon in California as well, where people were just, even when they could, were not coming back to work because the benefits for not coming back to work were almost just as good as working. Correct. Now, mind you, we didn't have that issue personally because we ended up treating everybody and keeping them in the family, uh, if you will. But yeah, most restaurants had that issue and they couldn't open because they were making so much money either on unemployment or they or they weren't able to care was an issue. Right. Like there were so many different facets to this. I wouldn't necessarily say it was one particular bullet, but definitely the fact that people were getting paid, paid to stay home. Um, and now, so you, the one, the anti-Newsom rant goes viral. Is that what really launches you to the public eye on social media? Or had you already attained a certain you know, notoriety before that? I mean, I had a notoriety as being like a Food Network guy, right? So I was in contract with Food Network. I judged multiple shows on Food Network, um, uh, Food Network US, Food, Food Network Canada. I had my own show on FYI Network when A&E bought out History Channel. And then I went back to Food Network. So I had some kind of, you know, C-grade television experience, if you will. Um, and I host a AM830 radio show out here. So there was a little bit of knowledge, but this was a whole nother level of, of attention. And, you know, to speak to that attention, when I, I, I should mention here that 11 days after I went on that anti-Newsome rant, every single business that my name is attached to got served a labor audit by the labor commissioner of California which wrapped us up in over $65,000 in legal fees fighting it. They sent a letter to every employee I had for four years asking if we ever missed a paid break, anything. There was no, our, our attorneys couldn't find any trigger on what was driving this. They had no kind of smoking gun or specific case to point to in which they wanted to do this audit. It was clearly political. Um, 
And uh, uh, it was on my, some of my LLCs that were just single member LLCs that I use as shell companies, but they did employee audits. So they audited our records. They did subpoenas on my wife. This went on for like seven months after. Guess when we stopped hearing anything from the labor commissioner? Uh, when the I was going to say when you said you love Big Brother, but I don't think you ever said that yet. No, I have no idea when. When the Newsom when the Newsom recall was approved, we never heard a word back. It was it was a coincidence, Andrew, much like uh, Matt Taibbi uh, being visited by the IRS as he's testifying before Congress. Uh, yep. That's incredible. So this is like sort of an audit investigation into all of your employees to make sure that you're compliant with, you know, California regulations. Yep. Yep. There was no complaint. There was no there was nothing. You know, we it wasn't like we didn't file our 941 and that triggered an audit. There was nothing triggering this because we'd always been compliant we had a large corporate human resources department there was no like there were there, there was nothing on paper that said oh because of x we're now doing this audit um when you got vocal you actually i do want to ask you a few questions about the the, the food network television stuff but did that did those uh opportunities take a dive did they did they fizzle out after you got vocal and were deemed to be part of the uh the the, the fringe minority with unacceptable views Oh, 100%. Nobody, they won't touch me with a 10 foot pole anymore. No, not, not, not. I've never had any of that. I got dropped from boards that I was on, um, you know, within the restaurant industry on a, on a grand scale. Um, you know, I don't want to name names, but yeah, I was totally blacklisted. Makes me very, very angry because, you know, there's, it, it, it's a betrayal that's beyond any, any logic. It's, it's a betrayal that's beyond any description. Not, it has not, I've never, I've been a loner. It's, I haven't experienced this, but I, I mean, I, I, I know people just, you immediately get blacklisted if not by businesses, by friends. Um, how, how have you internalized that? How has that not made you angry at the world around you or, or has it, or has it, I should ask. <laughs> well, I mean, honestly, in the beginning, it was it, emotionally, it was kind of difficult to try and figure out how to deal with all this because it was so rapid and everything was happening so quickly. Um, you know, and then the emotion of like still trying to run our own restaurant and still trying to maintain success and then have four kids, newborn, COVID, all these changes. I mean, it was like everything was just so incredibly overwhelming. Uh, but our and then plus the fund, right? Like what was started as a $10,000 fund. Now we have $500,000 that we're distributing. Um, by the way, we ended up distributing more than that because we, we kept running the fund through the restaurant. So we started doing a percentage of sales from the restaurant as well to keep the fund going. Uh, so for, for me, eventually I was, I, I did get angry, but it wasn't anger. It was just like, like these people, okay, well, good to know now, right? Like, I'm glad to know that this is the way in which they operate and I don't want anything to do with it. Um, Okay. Okay. Now let me, let me just think if there's anything I, I've got some questions. What we might do is end this on rumble. And just, if you have time, uh, just a few, like maybe 10 minutes of, of questions on, on, on locals. Um, three questions here. You are what you eat from Barbisa Bar, Bar, Bar Ariane. Super chat suck. This is from seize the day. Um, and organics are deaf. Um, what are you doing now? So like, first of all, net positive, not just financially, spiritually, um, business-wise, has it been a net positive? Is it still a struggle on a day-to-day -day basis to fight back against these forces that are pushing back on you for pushing back on them? Well, it's always a struggle, right? So now we're just in the kind of the long, cold war of doing this. Uh, if you believe in a, you know, a certain kind of 
framework of thought. We, we sold Slapfish. So we actually ended up selling to that larger partner. Um, and I won't get into the details of that, although you can kind of read between the lines on some, some of it. Um, and we said, okay, well, we're just going to you know, focus on one restaurant now. We actually were going to travel around for a while uh, and just not do anything and kind of lean into the media piece of this. But we opened, we had an opportunity to open a beautiful restaurant right on the water here in Huntington Beach. So we do have one restaurant now where we're using that as the vehicle through which we can continue doing good, using the restaurant, using food as the great unifier. And for me personally, you know, it's about just engaging with more people. Food is the great unifier. And I think you can understand conversations about politics and life by way of food as we talk about anybody who reads and understands the story of the, the kind of Amish milk farmers or any of these and we say, do you really want more government in your life? Like when you use food as the means by which you have those real everyday conversations, I think it's a great way to get people to kind of open their eyes to what works and what doesn't work. So I always talk about, you know, kind of food as that being that that conduit to do so. And that's what I'm focusing on right now. But now some people are going to look at you and say that you're you're uh, you're um, not learning from your mistakes by getting back into business in Huntington. Now, I, Huntington Beach, I don't know about the politics of the county. Huntington Beach is where Tito Ortiz is from, right? He's the Huntington Beach bad boy. Okay. So, I mean, some people are going to say you're now doing business with the same devil that has been abusing you for the last little while. Do you, I mean, do you, do you need to stay in California? Are you thinking about leaving um, and maybe taking your business elsewhere to Texas or to, to Florida? I mean, you, you, somebody's got to fight the fight on the front line. And Huntington Beach is relatively conservative from a from a regulatory perspective. And I work with city council. I know them. It's a great city council. Orange County is also somewhat reasonably minded. It's a beautiful place. Um, and we've got roots here. Right. So uh, why run away? I, you're going to run into this anywhere. I mean, it's not to say that, like, all of Texas is conservative. You've, we've seen what's happened in Texas or Florida, for that matter. Right. Like there's there's good areas and there's bad areas. And I sure I'm sure that I could go put put myself in an echo chamber, but I would much rather change people's minds. I would much rather fight the fight, show everybody what we've got going on. We give up California. Everybody thinks California is, is crazy, crazy left. I think there's six to 8% in the center here that could totally flip California. When you walk around the streets of California and talk to people, most people are not as crazy. It's just the, the crazy ones are the loudest ones. It's not like that though. That, that, that much I have certainly noticed if social media has taught us anything. Um, now, hold on. What's, what's the restaurant called? Uh, Calico Fish House. So Calico is a seafood species off the coast of California that's, that's a real resilient species. It's a beautiful fish, and we thought it represented kind of our business model well. And then also the name Calico is pretty cool. Fantastic. And now, um, Chef, do you have another 10 minutes to spare? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yep. What we're going to do here, we're going to go to local. So I'm going to end this on Rumble. It's not going to change anything from our end. And we're going to go do, we're going to take the locals exclusive questions because there's a ton of questions and they're good. They're not necessarily juicy politically. They might be juicy food wise. So I'm going to end the stream on Rumble. Come on over to vivabarnslaw.locals.com. Actually, I should give everybody that link. Oh, no, no. What did I just do here? Refresh this. And uh, we've got some good questions. There. So give me two seconds just to figure this logistically out here. And Chef, uh, link is coming, everybody, here. So this is the link. Link to locals. Boom shakalaka. Uh, and people, I mean, you've done amazing stuff. And I, I say for all the shit that everyone's been through for the last little while, we've gotten to meet not interesting people, but, but truly good people. People who you might not agree with on everything, but you agree with them on the substantive things, which are the most important. Uh, and so for the friends that 
I'm sure all of us have lost and the business that all of us have lost or some of us, uh, we've made it back uh, in, in other respects. So, Chef, uh, we're going to continue this on locals, but it's, there's a good crowd there. And I'm going to get some of the questions. So ending on Rumble now, and it changes nothing from our end. And we're ending. Okay, good. Now, here are some of the questions, uh, Chef, that are both culinary and political. Peak Mediocrity says, what does he think of people who like their steak well done? What if it's filet mignon? Now, th this is a joke of a question, but I, well, it's sort of humorous. But I think that there is actually now that you, you started getting into like how to cut meat. Uh, in one of your podcasts, you talked about, um, what was the word you said? Reverse searing or double? What was it? Um, was it reverse searing? Yep. Now, I need to know what that is, but there is a scientifically justifiable answer to this. It's a sin to overcook quality meat because you end up overcooking the proteins. Is that right or is that wrong? Well, I don't know. I, I think people can eat their food the way they want to eat their food. Now, if, if you're asking me objectively, is it going to be a better piece of meat cooked a certain way by kind of universally accepted standards of moisture and the collagen, the mouthfeel, the sear, all of that. I will use those objective standards to give it a grade based upon what's collectively been decided. But if you like your meat well done, eat your meat well done. I mean, I wouldn't spend money on a Wagyu steak or a Kobe steak to eat it well done because you're cooking out everything that you paid money for. Right. Like okay. when you when you bring extra virgin olive oil to a smoke point, you kill all the flavor that you paid for. Extra, extra virgin, high quality olive oil is to be used raw. So why spend the money? Just use a pumice olive oil or a refined olive oil that isn't as high quality. And the same goes to steak or meat or any of that. That is the that's an amazing, amazing answer. And I, and I also never appreciated the different smoke points on on oils versus butters versus um, other stuff. Okay, this is from orthogonal, 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 I don't know. Uh, how can restaurants promote local meat producers in an affordable way to benefit the many, not just the few? And I guess the, the, the bigger question to this is, what can, I asked, um, I'm going to forget his name now, but the, 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 the well-known farmer, um, oh, the chat's going to get his name before I can forget it, I, I, and I feel bad not remembering names, but what can people actually do to make sure that they're getting good meat to support local farmers? I mean, are there, are there is it as... A basic answer is Facebook groups and, and, and find local communities, or is there, I don't know, is there a better answer for people who want to make sure they're getting local, locally sourced meat that is actually good? Well, you can, you can find a lot of it online now, right? So you can buy online locally. The problem is you can't cross state lines with a lot, with much of this. There's still a, a ton of regulation that's pushing the little guy out or forcing them to consolidate with some of the bigger meat packers or pro meat processing facilities. But if online now you're seeing that you can buy a lot of this local meat and you bring it in, there's nothing wrong with frozen product. There's nothing wrong with whole cuts. So I, you know, I'd kind of utilize the internet and talk to, talk to your contemporaries to figure that one out. Because at local, local, I mean, what is your local shop? Like mo most places don't have local butcher shops anymore. It's just the Albertsons counter or like the Kroger counter, and they're not buying anything local. Uh, lying in state says Viva. Oh, this is for you. For grilled cheese, do you personally butter both sides of the bread and toast both sides or just butter one side, toast one side? 
well, the key to a good grilled cheese is a beautifully toasted exterior, buttered exterior, right? So why wouldn't you amplify that flavor and double it by doing both sides first? Not only does it double the flavor of the toasted butter and the butter salads on there, but it actually creates a stronger architecture for your grilled cheese sandwich because the other side is toasted on the inside. So a good grilled cheese stands up straight. It doesn't flop down and the, and the cheese doesn't fall out. And you can really only achieve that by toasting your bread, but you got to do it low and slow. Don't just toast the outside because then the inside is still raw and it falls apart. You got to do a low, slow heat on both sides. It's going to take a good 15 minutes to toast it all the way through to establish that structure. All right. And just so you know, chef, none of this is, it's not that this is only going to locals. When I post this entire video tomorrow, the world is going to get this locals exclusive part because that is some damn good advice. These are correct. Yeah. Like it's not just that these are preference answers. These are correct answers to good questions. Um, any tips for cooking fish? I can never get them cooked right. For people who hate the taste of fish, like people don't like things that taste fishy, uh, what type of fish and what, what are some of your, your secrets for cooking fish well? Yeah, people use too, too high of a heat with fish, right? So it either sticks to the pan, sticks to the grill, or, or it just falls apart or they burn it or dry it out. I like to do with fish is, number one, if you don't like fish that's fishy, you want to eat something that's firmer fleshed, right? So whether it's mahi, yellowtail, tuna, those are meatier types of fish. Um, salmon is kind of middle of the road, but start in the oven, right? Like use your oven, don't use a pan or cook in a pan in the oven and use a little bit of liquid. So steaming fish, because it's so rich and so flavorful, you don't need to do that hard sear or hard grill on fish. And if you want to, you can do it at the end, right? So if I'm going to cook a fish, and I want to add a lot of flavor to it. I use a ton of citrus, right? Ton of acid, whether it's vinegar or citrus. And I do it in a little bit of liquid. And then I'll put it in a 350 degree oven, either directly in the pan or on a sheet pan. And I cover it and I let it steam itself. If I then want to add flavor, a hard flavor at the end, you can either throw it on the grill or you can blast it in the oven at the last minute or just brush it with some mustard and some crushed up potato chips to give it flavor and texture. And you've got that nice potato crust on the fish itself. So use your oven. Don't use your stovetop. All right. Uh, uh, well, let me see here. This is, um, this is from Bill Moran says, what is the most decadent thing you've ever created? And for getting schools, if you had to do it all over again as an apprentice, whom would you study under today? Uh, today, I would, I would do absolutely everything I could to study under Gordon Ramsay, but that's going to be too difficult to do. But I'll tell you this. Every single local community has a great bistro or a great independently owned restaurant. Learning how to cook isn't just about cooking and the science of cooking. It's about learning how to run a business, how to pay people well, how to treat your contemporaries with respect, right? This whole idea of like being a jerk in the kitchen, that's an old trope. That's silly and it does nothing for the restaurant or for you as an individual or as an ego-driven chef. You need to actually treat everybody with respect and learn how to take criticism. And that's what becoming a good chef is about. So you can do that in any kitchen, in any community, in any local environment. Um, but in terms of the most decadent thing I've ever cooked, it's one of my favorite items to eat. And it's peanut butter and uh, uh, bacon. Peanut butter, bacon, and banana. It's similar to the Elvis. It's similar to the Elvis. But uh, I had the banana. I don't know that he had the banana on there. Bacon and peanut butter. I think I, 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 and you cook the bacon crispy. It's not soggy bacon. Yeah. 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 So make a peanut butter sandwich, slice some bananas in there and then throw some crispy bacon on it. I think I might, it I, 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 I might have to give that a try. Uh, another, now this is in our other community. Well, this is in our, our live stream, live chat community and locals. Mandalici asks question number four. I guess I'll get to the other questions afterwards. Uh, have you ever burnt a meal beyond it being edible? And is there a good story to go with it? 
Um, oh boy. Uh, yeah, I mean, I burn. I just give up when I burn it, to be honest with you. Anytime I burn something, I usually forget about it in the oven and then that's it. Uh, I left, I was trying to dry, dehydrate strawberries in the oven the other day. And uh, it, after six days, I remembered that they were in there. And my <laughs> wife had actually thrown chicken nuggets in there on multiple occasions along the way. Um, needless to say, burnt strawberries don't leave the best after smell. I, I once was, I used to boil chicken because it was just the easiest way to cook things when I was in university. And then I started the chicken and then forgot I was boiling the chicken and went out for a long run. And when I get back, there's a fire truck outside the house. I, <laughs> the, the water had boiled out, but I ate the chicken because other than the massively burnt piece on the bottom, it tasted like perfect smoked chicken. Uh, the, you know, the few remaining pieces inside. Uh, we got uh, S Laird 456, who's in our community, says, I really love Chef's impromptu cooking session on Tim Cast's after show. Chef, what was it you added to the scrambled eggs? Was it vinegar? I can't remember. Anyway, it was great. Yeah, it was white balsamic vinegar. So adding vinegar or acid to a rich food is always going to make the flavors. It's going gonna, it's gonna to increase the flavor profile, and it's going to cut through the richness of that food. And your palate wants that. Your palate doesn't want an overwhelmingly rich flavor. Your palate wants balance, right? Salty, sour, sweet, and bitter. So that was why I added the, the, the sour element to it. All right. We got Mr. Mike, Mr. Mike, who says, if possible, no pressure. Shref Gruel's thoughts on celebrity chef Jose Andres exemption from California gas stove ban. First of all, do you have a take on the gas stove ban to begin with? And uh, I didn't know of chef's exemption, if you have any idea about this. Yeah, I do. I do. I actually just did a piece on Newsmax on this. Um, the Well, first of all, if we're using the gas stove ban in order to help the environment and we're using the metrics in terms of fossil fuel output, it's, it's a bunk argument because in order to electrify everything, we're actually going to have to produce more coal and we're going to use more coal and more natural gas because the lion's share of our electricity produced is done so through fossil fuels. So if you're saying now we have to electrify you're actually going to be one step away from the source, which is less efficient. So it's worse for the environment by their very metrics. I think that the whole thing is just a scam. And I think that it's being lobbied um, from a financial perspective by a lot of the companies that are producing this. I think that it's become the left's culture war. They, they will not. They're so stubborn that they won't give up on it. But they're going to stop using the environment and they're going to start using human health. So they're going to come up with some sort of chemical or something that's being produced off of these gas stoves that's killing us. They're going to get one of these universities to write a study about it. And then that's going to be the study that's traipsed around and masquerades as real science. And they're going to use that to scare us um, in terms of the exemption. Yeah. I mean, it just goes to show you that it's silly, right? It's it's if they firmly believed that having not having gas stoves was a bad thing for people and for the environment, there would be no exemptions at all. But of course you've got Jose Andreas's exemption because he's, you know, he's a hero. Um, which he is, he's a good person, but he's a hero of that, that group think. And, uh, you know, he gets, he gets his gas stove. Um, we got another one. Entry required says, Chef Grill, what do you know about the government program to use MRNA shots on livestock? The cattle industry is first up. Yeah, I've heard a lot about this. Um, you know, I don't know the de the specific details. I need to talk to some ranchers and some farmers to understand it, but it doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, let's just... You know, whether it's mRNA vaccines or whether it's antibiotics or whether it's some other chemical that they use and spray on our food system, we know that the government is notorious for introducing chemicals and bad things into our food system to try and decrease the costs, to try and help out some of these large companies that have merged with the government um, in order to produce. They're going to do it under the guise of creating a healthy food system. Um, but 
once again, and I'll say this in regards to lab-grown meat, the MRA, mRNA vaccines, is that they've never been successful at telling us the truth or being right. So even if they think they're telling us the truth in the beginning, 20 years later, there's always a, oh, whoops, we were wrong every single time. I mean, how many Camp Lejeune ads do I have to hear on TV? You know, if you've been poisoned sick or you have cancer or melanoma, you know, because the government sponsored Camp Lejeune, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's like one thing after another, talcum powder, you name it. But the FDA, the FDA can't even properly manage spinach without killing people, let alone, you know, drugs and, and lab grown chicken. All right, two last ones, uh, Chef. S. Laird says, S. Laird 456 says there were more, uh, hold on, what is it? There, there were more Trump voters in 2020 in California than in Texas. I'm in San Diego. I'm glad he wants to say, I love, he wants to stay. I love Chef Gruel. And then last one, DTQC says, Chef, the cliche of French cuisine is that it relies heavily on butter and cream to be good. What's your opinion on that? Yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's actually a great question. It relies on butter and cream just because that's the way in which they cook, right? Like from that area, because that's the, the food that's being produced, but not the overuse of butter and cream. You see, that's where I think a lot of chefs get it wrong is, is that they think that they can fix something or make it flavorful by overusing butter and cream. You actually, the less you use, the better it is, because then you have a balanced plate. So if I just put butter in everything, all you're going to taste is fattiness and butter, right? And you're going to walk away from that meal feeling full physically, but, but your palate intellectually is going to feel unbalanced and you're going to want something else. That's why when you eat Chinese food, you're, honey, you're hungry like 10 minutes later because Chinese food is just salty and rich. It's not sour. Um, sometimes it has sweetness. There's no bitterness. It's very unbalanced. Hmm. Okay. Chef, I'm seeing something. I have an idea as to like future weekly episodes, but I will talk about it afterwards. Um, Chef, thank you very much. Uh, it, it, this is it's been fascinating. Uh, when I when I post this entire interview, it's going to include up until this last point on YouTube. I'm going to post it to YouTube and, and Rumble as well. Um, I think I got to everything, but if, if I didn't, I'll ask you on Twitter. Thank you very much. Uh, stick around after I end this. We'll say our proper goodbyes. But the chat thanks you. Uh, I thank you. You're, you're doing amazing stuff above and beyond. Call it activism, whatever, being a vocal uh, uh, spokesperson for those who can't necessarily speak up for themselves or who don't want to put up with the shit for, for right or wrong that you've been putting up with as a result of you speaking out. Uh, the world thanks you. So thank you very much for this. This was amazing. Thank you oh, for having I me. To ask, I forgot to ask you where I can put it. I'm going to put all your links in the pinned comment. I, I, I'm, yeah. I should do it at the beginning, Chef, so that I don't forget to do it at the end. Uh, I'm going to end this. I'll put your links up everywhere, but stick around. We'll say our proper goodbyes. Everyone out there, see you all soon. <laughs>